You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. So, Nehemiah 13, that's where we're at today. For a lot of faces here that I'm looking at, you're coming in at the end of the story because we've been working through Nehemiah uh, through the entire summer. And this is the last chapter. This is the end of uh, this book. And it's one I've been very anxious to preach as, uh, as we've been sitting here. But I think I have to start off by uh, saying a couple things. I have two fears. Well, I have a lot of fears, actually, but two main ones. Actually, three. One is public speaking. Um, truly. Uh, another one is snakes. I don't care how harmless they are. I'm convinced that they were created to somehow do something to me. Uh, and the other one is bears. That, that you know, There's a bear out there, and I'm on his menu. And he's just waiting for me to stumble into him, that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to pick on my wife just for a minute here, because she has two fears that I just, I, I hate to say this, but I find them really amusing. And one of them is escalators. <laughs> there's, there's nothing better than watching my, my, my wife mount an escalator, you know, because it takes a warm-up and a ramp and a jump and that kind of thing. And she's on, and then she's all like, woo you know, I'm still alive. It didn't eat me, kind of thing. The other one is revolving doors. Okay, you go up to the hospital, they got that big revolving door. She does not want to go into that revolving door because I think she's convinced somehow she'll never come out of it. Um, which has happened to me, by the way. I have so much fun in revolving doors that I sometimes forget to get out of them. And then suddenly pop out. I'm like, oh, I'm back outside again. <laughs> I have to do it again. And if you don't want to get in a revolving door with me, especially at the hospital, because I like to see how many people can get in there at once and how fast we can move it, kind of thing. So I'll just if you might want to get out, I'll just keep pushing you with the door behind you. So um, have you ever felt like you were stuck in a revolving door in life? Does life sometimes seem like a door that just kind of keeps spinning? You're like, how did I get back around here again? How did I get to this? Well, that's part of what we're going to see here in Nehemiah 13. Now, we have to do that thing, right? We have to do Brian's Vacation Bible School thing. You'll notice in your bulletin, there's a list of icons on the side there. And Brian has been very diligent and faithful and consistent in taking us through the different motions of, of that, and he calls it the BBS hand motions. Uh, his inner BBS guy comes out. I don't do that. Um, I did youth ministry with middle schoolers and high schoolers for about 30 years. And what he does in BBS form, I call the Bruce Banner approach. In youth ministry, it's more of the Hulk approach. It's, it's much bigger, much more dramatic, much more expressive. Now, I need help doing this. So we're going to go through the icons, and this is going to tell us the story of the Old Testament um, up to Nehemiah, so that we kind of get the context of what's happening. Uh, Eric did not know that when he signed up to marry my daughter-in-law, that he signed up his rights for me to embarrass him anytime I want to. So mainly not, I don't, not yeah, I want to embarrass him, but not just because of that, but because he's so freaking expressive, I think he would help me out really well with this. So Eric, if you would come up, please welcome Eric as he comes up here. I'll give it back to you. Alright. Because everybody else in chairs, 
he's gonna he's gonna learn this along with everybody else. Okay, but you get to be the focal point. Just stand in front of the chair there. All right, I'll help you through it. I'll kind of show you. Okay, so okay. so like when Brian does the creation thing, which is that thing with the world and stuff like that, and he kind of does jazz hands and that, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's kind of Bruce Banner. Um, when we do creation, man, especially in youth ministry, it's like this. It's like ta-da, like that. Okay, so I need to yeah. See, I told you you'd be good at this, all right? And then, so that's what happened. God made everything. That was the creation. Ta-da, everything happened. So I need you all to stand up, all right? Yeah. Get stuff like, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I love the groans. <laughs> all the middle schoolers are like, yeah. All the high schoolers are like, oh, we're too cool. <laughs> So in the beginning, God made everything he created, and it went, ta-da, there you go, great, there's more, wait, there's more, because after that story, we see Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God, and that led to humankind's fall, so right back in the chairs, just fall back in your chairs, but don't break the chairs, okay, there you go, all right, all right, but wait, there's more, you got to get back up again, because God wasn't done with that, even though man had sinned, he called out one man, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make many nations out of you, so that my name will be made known in this world. So you have to take a globe and spin it, and that's the story of nations. Alright? You're spinning your globe around there. But wait, there's more because, you see, out of all those nations, God chose one nation to represent himself. Israel. And their job was basically to say, this is what it looks like for sinners sinful people, broken people, to have a relationship with a holy God. So, he takes them and he puts them in Egypt. And you see the chains there. They were in slavery. So what you got to do is find somebody next to you and capture them. Okay? Capture them. All right. <laughs> you thought. <laughs> All the introverts. <laughs> Social interaction time is not over. All right? But wait, there's more. There's, they weren't just left there to be in in captivity forever. That was God's way of building them and forming them to be his people. So then comes that period of history that we call the Exodus. You notice the icon with the, the tablets. That's when they were given the law. And God said, look, it's time to get out of Egypt. So y'all got to run. We got to get out of Egypt. Okay, we're moving. We're getting out of there. But wait, there's more. They just didn't run the whole time because while they were going through the Exodus, again, they rebelled against God. They didn't, they didn't remain faithful to him. And they ended up just kind of wandering around. So you can just wander around a little bit, that kind of thing. Okay. But wait, there's more. That was the footprints there. When, they, when that generation got done wandering around, they basically had to die out to stop wandering. A new generation came up and they said, we're ready to go in and we're going we're gonna to go into the promised land. Key word here is land. Now this is going to be hard for you guys to do it here, but I'm gonna wa- I want to see Eric do this. You have to make a three-point classic superhero landing, right? You know how that goes? You know, down like that. What? Valerie was just, watch Valerie. Valerie's going to do it. There you go. Not only are you gonna land, you gotta do this epic way. You gotta you gotta land and then slowly raise up. So they came into the land. (laughs) 
Awesome. Awesome. That's perfect. And there they settled in the land. But wait, there's more because you see, they didn't, they didn't completely obey God when they went into the land and they ended up keeping some of the problems there with them and the problems began to overtake them and they ended up in, in kind of this bondage. So God had to send these guys to help them. And that's where we get to the book of Judges. But that's the worst translation I could ever imagine for these guys that, that we call the Judges. The Hebrew word is Shofetim. What these guys were in actuality were paladins. And if you're not fantasy role players, I feel bad for you. (laughs) But a paladin is this like super knight who was gifted by a deity to to do amazing things. And that's basically what we read in there over and over and over again. So what you have to do is you have to do a a shield clash like that, okay? Paladins. Okay, everybody else, show them all how to do it. Everybody together, paladins. (laughs) All right, but wait, there's more because even though these paladins were kind of cool and not so cool at the same time, the people looked around and they said... We want a king. We want a king like somebody else. Now, Jonas pretty much had it right by putting, doing the moose years, things like that. Only nobody else wanted to be king. They always wanted somebody else to have that responsibility. So you have to moose year somebody else and crown them. All right? So there's the kings. Crown everybody beside you. I'll be your Okay, there we go. All right. All right. Perfect. Okay. Thank you, Kobe. Now, the problem was is that a lot of these kings were really lousy, and they led Israel into spiritual decline, and they forsook God. They left God. And God has a funny, he's kind of ironic in the way he does things. He says, all right, you want to leave me? Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you leave me. And he takes them into exile, pulls them out of the promised land, and sends them into Babylon for 70 years until they, they get their act right. So, so what we have to do to represent the exile here is because they left, we all have to shift over to your left, okay, which is opposite means. All right, yeah. Wow, there were some people. I don't know. They're wandering again. All right. So 70 years they were in exile, but God was not done with them. Wait, there's more. He's still going to do something. So he brings them back to the land, back to Jerusalem, back to... And, and so now they're going right. Oops, I'm going the wrong way now. So now they're going right. You go back to the place that you belong. You can go all the way back to your place. Thank you, Eric, for doing that. You guys can all have a seat. I was going to make you do it all again, but I'm tired. So almost had to call Ray up, my stunt double, to, to fill in for me there. Um, you know, and it's interesting that that they were going right, you know, get right back to where they were, um, get right, in a sense, with God. And then we get to the book of Nehemiah, and we have to say, but wait, uh, there's more. In... In the song, or no, not in the book of Ecclesiastes. Make sure I get myself in the right book. Um, Solomon sums up pretty nicely in Ecclesiastes chapter one the story of humankind. And uh, I'm sorry, but I am not one of these guys that reads the Bible and looks at all these heroes in the Bible because there was only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus Christ. All the rest of us screwed it up over and over and over again. And it's very tempting to read like Nehemiah and say, hero, look at this guy, he's awesome. And yeah, he was awesome, he did a lot of amazing things. But Nehemiah, just like the rest of us, is a horrible person. Well, you didn't like that, I know. (laughs) But that is the truth that the Bible reveals about us. There is no glory for man as we are without Jesus Christ. The only glory there is, is God's glory. And we've got to figure out, well, how do we... 
how do we return to that? How do we experience that? And, and, and in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I just want to read a portion of this chapter to you. And uh, you're going to see, I, I think, a truth being revealed in Hebrew poetry. He says this beginning in verse 4. A generation comes and a generation goes. But the earth remains the same through the ages. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries away to a place from which it rises again. The wind goes to the south and circles around to the north. Round and round the wind goes and on its rounds it returns. All the streams flow into the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. What exists now is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing truly new on the earth. Is there anything about which someone can say, look at this, it's new? It was already done long ago, before our time. And then verse 11 is so key here. No one remembers the former events. No one, or nor will anyone, remember the events that are yet to happen. They will not be remembered by future generations. It's often said, you know this statement, that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to... Repeat it. There you go. Guess what the Bible tells us over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament? Even those who have learned from history are just as apt to repeat it. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word today, we need to hear your voice. Not my voice, but but your voice. And so, Lord, I'm just praying now that you would get me out of the way um, so that your spirit would just be free to do what your spirit does best. And that's to speak to all these these different individuals here, um, saying what what they most need to hear. Um, Lord, I don't know what that is. I I don't. I just know what your word says, and I want to present your word. But, but how that gets translated into our hearts um, is, is something that only your spirit can do right now. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray you would give us a, um, spiritual eyes to see things like we've not seen them before. Um, and also open ears uh, to hear your voice in, in the midst of everything that's going on. Lord, we want to hear that gentle whisper of your spirit. And uh, that, Lord, you would... Meet us right where we're at. Because I don't know where everybody's at in their life. I I don't know what burdens each person might have carried in here. I don't know what makes them anxious. um, Other than I know Ezra really wants some eggnog in a couple of months. But I I don't know other things that are going on in Ezra's heart. But you do because you made him and you love him just like every person here in this, this congregation. And you really want what's best for every single person here. So I pray for that. And I pray that you would give us permission to believe your word like we've never believed it before. And that, Lord, you would set us free to have a faith in what you say. Not in what we think or, or what we heard someone else say, but faith in your word, Lord, that is, that is a, an amazing faith. 
And again, not so that somehow we get glory out of it, but that Jesus Christ alone would receive that glory. Lord, this, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I gotta get a drink. I'm already thirsty. There's not much else in my heart. <laughs> Just ignore, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for confessing that. All right, I want us to look at what the Bible teaches us about history. This is very important because when you're, when you're reading Nehemiah, you're reading a story. You're reading history, all right? The Bible is more like a library than it is a book. The first 17 books of the Old Testament are history. And if you start in Genesis and read all the way to Esther, you pretty much get a solid narrative storyline, except for Chronicles. Chronicles messes us up because it says, hey, First Chronicles says, let's go back and talk about the Samuels. And Second Chronicles says, let's go back and talk about the kings, the first and second kings. But that's, that's pretty easy reading. You're getting the stories you go through there. And Nehemiah is pretty much at the end of the Old Testament storyline. We have Esther that comes right at, right on the heels of that. So when you're reading Nehemiah, it's good that you understand history. Okay, now if you look up there on your slide, uh, you're going to see kind of a li- this cycle that, that's happening. And that's what history does. It doesn't just do this. It, it really kind of does this. <laughs> it's going somewhere. Because God's in charge of history. He has a starting point for history and he has an ending point for history. And he's bigger than history because God is eternal. All right, Eternity stretches far beyond history. But while history is in motion... And it is constantly in motion. It's kind of this, this downward spiral. Did you ever wonder where we got that term downward spiral? Just flush the toilet and you'll figure it out. Okay? So it's been 12 years. I'm sorry. Let me, let me get back to this, this title here before I get to that or this slide here. So here's usually the way the cycle of history works in the story of humankind. Freedom. You know, you go all the way back to the beginning, uh, Genesis, and Adam and Eve were free. They knew, they knew freedom like we don't. And they had this complete freedom. And it's pretty easy when we're in that stage of, hey, I'm free to say, man, we are awesome. This is great. But after a little while, wait, there's more. <laughs> Something else happens. And in our freedom, we begin to experience an abundance. Maybe it's just an abundance of the good life or whatever it is. And it's real easy in, us, in that stage of our, of our cycle, our revolving door, to say, hey, look how great we're doing. And, and, and we go through that. You've had periods where you say, man, we are awesome. Or how's life? Man, we are doing great. But wait, there's more. A little time goes on and then suddenly um, the awesomeness seems to wear off. You know, it's not as much fun as it used to be. It's not as exciting as it used to be. We suddenly start getting bored with what the way our life is. And so we say, well, maybe we should try something new. Let's shake things up a little bit. That's, that's usually the way we work. Well, things are great. We're awesome. All that. Things are getting a little weird now. So, yeah, maybe we ought to just try something a little bit new. But wait, there's more. We don't land there. We keep going and suddenly we find ourselves in bondage. Suddenly things aren't great. We're not awesome. Um, things have, instead of gotten boring, they've gotten worse. And, and it's really easy for us to say, well, how did we get to this state? How did that happen? How did we land here? And then the next stage after that, after we kind of stewed in that for a little while, is usually we start looking for a rescue. How do I change my circumstances? How do I get out of this situation? And we cry out to our God, whatever God that is. It could be a capital G or it could be a little g. And we say, hey, get me out of this. And for a lot of humanity, our God that we look to for rescue comes in the form of a bottle or a drug or pornography or other people. 
or a job or our bank account or video games. There's so many things that we think this will be it. This will be the thing that will rescue me from this kind of messy state that I'm in. And maybe it will for a little while. We suddenly find ourselves back to the freedom stage again and go, yeah, we're awesome. And then prosperity and abundance. And then ah, a little bit of apathy. And and there we are. We're doing that. That's the book of Judges, by the way. If you read the book of Judges seven times, we're gonna, we watch them do that. But it's also the entire Old Testament. This is the story of mankind. But it's really going like this. And Nehemiah is part of that story. Let's, let's get to Nehemiah 13. It's been 12 years since Nehemiah received the news about Jerusalem. You might remember he was cupbearer to the king, the king of Persia, the emperor of Persia, Artaxerxes. Okay, He's the third highest in the kingdom. He's in a trusted position. Because he's the cupbearer, that means that he is tasting the king's food for poison. Making sure there's no assassination attempts happening here. You can, you can see how much he was valued by the king. And you can also see that this was a man that was willing to die at a given moment. He knew his life was forfeit. And usually people that, that live knowing that their mortality is right in front of their face, they tend to do amazing things. They say, let's make the most of the time that we have. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, there's that man. He gets word from his brothers that the city of Jerusalem that they left some 70 years ago is in utter ruins. This was the place where God's name was supposed to dwell and gather all the nations to his glory. And you can't do that when you're in ruins, when you're in wreckage. And this broke Nehemiah's heart, so he prayed, and he didn't just pray. He went to work. He asked for permission. Can I go back to to Jerusalem? And surprise of all surprises, the, the, the Persian emperor helped him out immensely. And then the rest of the story is about, we need to rebuild these walls. We need to restore this city. We need to repopulate it. We need to reinstate uh, the temple and, and dedicate it. We need to put the Levites back to work to lead us into worship. We need to praise God's name here in the midst of everything that's going on. And we don't care how much opposition we face. We're going to get this done. That's the story of Nehemiah chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to 13. But now it's 12 years later. It's hard to catch that sometimes when you're reading Scripture, the the passage of time. Twelve years since they came in there and started building that wall. The landscape can change a lot in twelve years, can it? Just a couple weeks ago, I I went up to this place that we called the Rochford Burn. It was an area up by Rochford, of course, uh, and they had a big forest fire back in the 30s or 40s or something like that. Cleared out all the trees, and so that made it a choice hunting spot. Because hunting in the hills is a little bit challenging. You've got to be quick. Well, I'm not quick. So, you know, I want lots of open sight and things like that so I could see, see the deer, know where they were moving, and, and that kind of thing. Hopefully go home and put something in my freezer. This was my family's stomping grounds during hunting season. My, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, which couldn't hit the broad side of a barn no matter how hard she tried, but we still took her hunting, you know, because it was funny to watch her walk into a coyote and... They both would freak out. <laughs> and, and my brother, my big brother, you know, we had, and, and there was this one spot there that we called the point. And it really was. It was this point of land, and there was this log at the end of it, and it was kind of sheltered by, by rocks and, and little bushes and stuff. And it was a great place to just sit because you could just see this panorama, 
you could watch deer forever. See, that, that deer has no idea what's coming in a couple of minutes, you know. And, and it was just a great spot to sit and watch the sunrise off to the east. And it was an amazing place. Well, I went and revisited that after 30 years. 30 years since I stepped on the burn. And let me tell you, the landscape has changed. It's no longer open. I couldn't hardly see 10 feet in front of me. The trees have come back. So much change. reason I went up there was uh, I went to lease a portion of my brother's ashes where he used to sit. And uh, when I got to the, where the road was to go to the point, I, I could tell by the lay of the land, this is, this is where the point is, but there are so many trees. And it wasn't by sight that I walked back down to that log where he used to sit. It was all by muscle memory from all the many times that we used to walk down there. And, and, and amazingly, God brought me to that point, and there it was. But it was very, um, I don't know how to say it, it was just uh, astounding to me how much things can change. And it really doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take 30 years for an open space to become a flourishing forest. And the same thing is true of our spiritual landscape quite often as well. Nehemiah um, returned back to Persia. Okay, Some believe that he... He served his term as governor of Jerusalem and then went back to his original post to serve the the emperor in in Persia. And after some time, we don't know exactly how long, sometime after that, you know, at the end of those 12 years, he went to the king again and said, I'd like to go back and visit Jerusalem. And the king said, yeah, you're a good guy. I'm going to let you go do that. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah 13. He's coming back to visit. Now, you also heard this phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And uh, we're going to see that there's an obvious decline in Israel from chapter 12 <laughs> into chapter 13. And if you want a really good idea of the nature of Israel at this particular time of history, uh, read the prophet Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, because Malachi was the prophet during this time. He was the guy speaking forth the word of God when Nehemiah came back and made this return visit to Jerusalem. And here we're going to see in Nehemiah 13 that history does repeat itself. Uh, here's a quick breakdown of what's going to happen. Before we do that, you have to go back and look at chapter 10. Okay, because this is, this is key, this is important. What happened in Nehemiah chapter 10, that the wall was built, the, the, the people were getting reestablished in Jerusalem, that it was, let's get back to the job that God gave us to represent him to all of mankind, okay, and represent God, uh, I mean, and represent mankind to, back to God, and, and it looks like they're doing great things. In fact, they made these promises in chapter 10, and they put these promises down in writing, a binding agreement, a covenant between them and God. And when you make those kind of vows, those kind of promises to God, that means that you've got to stick to them, okay? You don't make a a rash vow to God. In fact, the Bible even says better to not open your mouth at all than to make a promise you're not going to keep. But these guys said, no, look, we're serious. We're we're going to do this. And there's four promises that they put down in writing. And and, and as as you're looking at these promises, you might be thinking they're saying, this is what we learned from the exile, Okay, Israel abandoned God. Israel left the, the, the covenant that, that was originally made with God. He, we deserved to go into Babylon in exile for 70 years. 
and we learned our lesson, and now we're coming back and we're going to show God that we've learned our lesson. So here's our promise, God. First of all, you mean for us to be pure as a people because you intend for a Messiah, a Savior, to come out of this people. So that means that we, out of all the peoples in the world, will not intermarry. Even though we were free to do that because of our relationship with you, we will only marry within the Jewish tribes because the Messiah is going to come forth out of Israel, not, not a mixed thing. And so they made that promise. They put it down in writing. Then they said, God, we have been really lousy at honoring this and keeping the Sabbath. We, we just mess that up all the time. We still do today, don't we, right? And, and so they said, we're going we're gonna to get back to that. We're going to be Sabbath-honoring people. And they put that down in writing. And then they said, we're not going to neglect the Levites. We did that back in the days of the kings, and that's part of why you know, we lost our spiritual leadership, because we didn't allow them to be free to be spiritual leaders for us. And so we're going to make sure they're taken care of. You know, that, that they, that they're provided for so that they can focus on the job that you called them, that you gave to them to help lead us into a relationship with you. So in writing, God, we're gonna, we're gonna provide the, uh, for the Levites, but wait, God, there's more. There's more. We totally neglected the temple. I mean, we, we even allowed foreign gods to be housed in a place where your name was meant to be holy. And we're not going to do that anymore. We will not defile the temple. We will not neglect it. Uh, thank you that we got to rebuild the new one. Thank you for Ezra, not Egnog Ezra, Ezra but uh, Ezra of the Old Testament, uh, for building that, helping us build that temple, restoring us that. So we're going to make sure we take care of that. It's all in writing. You can see it in chapter 10. Okay? But now 12 years have passed by, and we get to chapter 13, and, and here's what happens. We're, we're going to break through this now. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And there's an historical reason for that. Both the Ammonites and the Moabites did their utmost to try to thwart God's movement in Israel. Uh, They were always an obstacle to them. And you might remember in the beginning of uh, Nehemiah that he faced obstacles, and and they came in the form of a Moabite and an Ammonite. Okay. They were still in the process of just trying to get in the way uh, and block God's work that he was doing. Well, indeed, we get the history in verse 2. It says, They did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Okay, Not, not that they just didn't want anything to do with them. They just made sure that in the temple and in their assemblies that they... they they put them somewhere else, okay? Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, and if you go back into chapters 1 through 4, Tobiah's a jerk. He's, a, he's this Ammonite guy that's doing everything he can to thwart Nehemiah, to, to get in the way of God's working and rebuilding that wall. And this is just amazing to me that this guy with this history, with these people, and with a guy named Eliashib who was named as one of the builders on the wall, people let us down, don't they? Eliashib's a disappointment. Here is a guy that was building the wall, and we see here as we read on... Um, oh, I'm in Esther, sorry that he had prepared for Tobiah, verse 5, a large chamber in the temple where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, 
and tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. This did not sit well with Nehemiah, nor should it. The temple was not an apartment complex, and especially for those that God said they have to be at a certain point away from the temple because of their history. I'm trying to make, God say, I'm trying to make something clear to you about approaching me. And Nehemiah comes back and finds out the very person that shouldn't be anywhere near the temple is actually living in it. And it's a guy that was a thorn in Nehemiah's side 12 years ago. How does that happen? How does the landscape change so much that that, that Eliashib, a builder of the wall, said, oh, it's okay, no problem. That's human history. That's you and me. It's so easy to make that little compromise. Ah, That's not a big deal. And suddenly the landscape begins to change. And then then we see Nehemiah's reaction, verse verse 8. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. You know, I get that picture of the angry girlfriend pitching everything out the window and the boyfriend's just standing there watching guitar, Xbox, everything else come down crashing from the second story, you know? And I don't know if there was a window there, but, but Nehemiah, he got busy. He just started picking up Tobiah. and this is getting out of here and this doesn't belong here. I imagine Tobiah just kind of walking down the hallway, hearing all this going on, you know, and leaning in all of a sudden, you know, because I think he would have went out on his ear if Nehemiah would have seen him. Nehemiah kind of loses his nut here. And he takes action. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the the chambers. And that really means they fumigated it. You've heard of termite infestations. Well, Nehemiah has no ammonite infestations here. So they fumigated and purified the chambers, and he brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. He says, let's get this back in order again. But wait, there's more. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. So I confronted the officials. I have trouble with this. I'm not a confrontational person. I start crying if you, if you want to have a confrontation. But Nehemiah, he is, man. He gets in their face. He gets, goes to the officials. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses, uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. <laughs> Nehemiah says, give me some reliable people here. What has happened in Jerusalem? Uh, and for they, they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then he says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his servant. You see Nehemiah's focus there? Remember me, God. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like anybody else does. All that work we did 12 years ago it seems to be forgotten. Then we move on. There's more. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. 
and it warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, from the city of Tyrians, they lived in that city, and they brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself! Exclamation point! Then I confronted, again he gets in people's faces, I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? See that repetition of history? And, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. He said, we're closed. Closed for the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, these are people that were used to doing business with Israel on the Sabbath, they showed up. And he says, but I warned them. And I said to them, why do you, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Do you see what's happening with Nehemiah? That's a violent threat. You show up again, try to do business on the Sabbath, I'm going to whip your tails. Well, some people might say, well, didn't Jesus do that? No! When Jesus came into the temple and he saw them treating God's temple like a common marketplace, yeah, he, he formed a scourge. And he moved animals out of there fast and heavy. He flipped a few tables over, but he did not lay hands on a single person. In fact, none of us can do this. We say, we say oh, i got the same righteous indignation as Jesus when I see God's holiness trampled upon. No, we don't. Because we don't know when to stop. See, Jesus knew when to stop. When he got the table where the doves were, did you notice he didn't flip that table over? But he said, would you please let them go? And maybe he remembered that was what his mom sacrificed eight days after his birth for her cleansing. You see, he wasn't out of control. Jesus is the only one, like I said, the only one in all the Bible that got it all right, even in anger. He knew how to be angry right. But Nehemiah's losing it. You show up again, you're going to have me to deal with. I will lay hands on you. But wait, there's more. (laughs) From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. (laughs) And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and cart the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then again, remember me, oh my God. Uh, remember this in my favor and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. But wait, there's more. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod. Uh, those were Philistines. Um, Ammon, the Ammonites, and, and Moab, the Moabites. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They couldn't even speak the language of Judah. They didn't even know how to speak Hebrew, these, these little kids. But only the language of each people. Verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I know it's real easy for us at this point to go, yeah, go Nehemiah. You know, Brian and I were talking about this in the ministry. Do you ever get to the point that you just want to beat people? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, I've got a list. <laughs> I don't know if you're on this list or not. You know. <laughs> But that's not the way the Lord's bondservant is supposed to behave. You can find that in the New Testament. We're not supposed to be quarrelsome. We're not supposed to be punchers. We're supposed to be gentle. And there's times when I thought, man, I would just like to do what Nehemiah just did there, but I can't justify Nehemiah's actions here. Because if anybody ever had a right to kick our tails all over the place, it was Jesus Christ. 
But instead he came here and he said, let me heal you. Just let me love you. Let me forgive you. Nehemiah is not presenting that picture here. Now I'm back in chapter 12. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to son, their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, and he's repeating history here to them as a lesson, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet, nonetheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying these foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib again, the high priest was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horite. Sanballat, remember him? Go back to chapters 1 through 4. He was jerk number 1. And now we got one of the builders of the walls who's serving as part of the, the priesthood married in a Sanballat's family. Therefore, I chased him from me. I think that's kind of the case where if you were to look at Nehemiah's face at that point, you're thinking, Egypt looks good. (laughs) Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. And then the last words of Nehemiah, Remember me, O oh my God, for good. You see what just happened in that chapter? In reverse order, every promise that they had written down in chapter 10 was broken. I remember back in the 90s, Focus and the Family promoted this thing called Promise Keepers. You know, and It was a great movement, a great organization, but I thought it was the stupidest name in the world because there's not a single human being that lives up to that name. Promise Keeper. It should be called Promise Breakers. Because I'm not just reading Israel's history. I'm not just reading mankind's history. I'm not just reading Nehemiah's history. I'm reading my history. And I'm reading your history. How many times have we told God, oh, it'll be different this time? And then the landscape changes. And some guy like Nehemiah has to throw us against the wall to get our attention. Remember me for good. Because here's one of the key points of this story. Even Nehemiah, who prayed patiently and consistently, Nehemiah, who could organize a bunch of non-Masons to rebuild a city wall, Nehemiah, who withstood the taunts, the threats, the traps of the opposition and and the enemy, Nehemiah, who rallied the people to, to rise together, come what may, and finish the task, Nehemiah, who knew enough that rest and joy were vital parts of worshiping, Nehemiah, who saw that he couldn't let the people just depend on him as a leader, so he developed leaders who would develop other leaders. Nehemiah, who put Jerusalem in order. Nehemiah, who never diminished his integrity until chapter 13, when he lost his nut and got violent and didn't represent God the way he should have. It's really easy to say, well, he had good reason. I can see why he was angry. I probably would have done the same thing. Well, of course we would have done the same thing. But we don't reach God in our own acts of righteousness. God does not measure that as righteous. 
And so we get to Nehemiah and we find out even Nehemiah, his landscape changed a little bit. Nobody's perfect. And the Old Testament demonstrates that. When you read the book of every, every Old Testament book, when you get to the end of them, you're going to see things like this. Genesis. Okay, things look pretty good. We got Joseph in charge now, and he, he seems to be a pretty decent guy, but wait, there's more. The book of Exodus. And we get to the book, end of the book of Exodus, and we see all the trouble of them getting out of Egypt and heading back to the promised land and all that sort of thing. And, and they, they build the ter- tabernacle and they raise it, and God's glory fills the tabernacle. And we think, well, that's good. Yeah, see, we're doing all right. Got the tabernacle up. God's glory is here, but wait, there's more, because then comes the book of Numbers. And, and, and then we see that they disobey God and now they're wandering about for 40 years but at the end of the book of Numbers they say okay we're done wandering now time to enter the promised land right because that's what God wanted for us hey good stuff wait there's more because we get to the book of Joshua and you read to the end of the book of Joshua and you can say hey we did it we conquered all the Canaanites and now we moved in and we settled the promised land but the problem is they did not conquer all the Canaanites they did God's job halfway and they thought that's a good enough for us and they settled. But wait, there's more. Then comes the book of Judges, which is like washing a toilet flush seven times. But wait, there's more. Then comes first and second Samuel, the Samuels. And they said, Well, look, we've been we've been watching other nations and they got kings. And and I think we you know, Saul is a, he, was, he had some rough spots, but David, he's kind of a decent guy, isn't he? No! David is a horrible person. Stop watching Veggie Tales. And determining that's who the Bible people are. The whole story of the Old Testament gives no glory to man, and nor should we expect it or deserve it. And then after Samuel or David, who was kind of an okay king, we have all the other kings in first and second kings, and okay, yeah, most of them were kind of really lousy kings, and they kept making things worse. So I guess we had the exile coming. Um, but we'll get it right when we get back. This time we'll, we'll get it right. And then we read all the prophets. What do these guys keep saying? Repent all the time. And out of those prophets, Malachi, whose last words, the closing of the Old Testament, turn their hearts back, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, a curse. That was God. Warning. Turn your hearts back, lest the land be struck with an irreversible curse. There's no coming back from that one. That's when mankind's cycle of history ends. And Nehemiah says, remember me for good. You see, it's pretty clear when we get to the end of Nehemiah, he was not the Messiah nor has any other human being in the Old Testament. They might have looked like a Messiah, but they were, they were not the Messiah. And that's probably why when Jesus showed up in the scenes, there were lots of questions. Tell us plainly, truly, are you the Messiah or not? Some even went to his cousin, John the Baptist. Are you him? Are you the one we should be? And he's like, not me, man. I can't even untie his shoes. I'm so glad there's a second testament in the Bible. Because when you get to the end of Malachi, here's the best wait, there's more. Because 400 years of that curse echoing in the history of mankind and Israel 
we get to the Gospels. And in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and that's Jesus Christ. And the Word Jesus was with God, and the Word Jesus was God. And the Word, this God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember Ecclesiastes 111? Of course not. We don't remember things. No one remembers the former events. No one will anyone remember the events that are yet to happen, uh, nor will they be remembered in future generations. That's our, that's our revolving door that humankind is stuck in. A cinder block does amazing things to a revolving door. I don't recommend trying this. <laughs> but it was really funny to watch my roommate come to a sudden stop against the class of a revolving door when I put an obstacle in there to keep it from spinning anymore. Right? Part of my brokenness. You see, that's what God did. God stepped into the revolving door of our brokenness and He left a big old cinder block that kept that door from spinning. That's why He planted an ugly, bloody cross right smack in the middle of our landscape. The sacrifice of Jesus was foretold from the beginning of time and will serve as a memorial until the end of history for forgetful mankind. The cross simply will not go away. Because of our propensity to forget the lessons of the past and and to repeat history, the cross remains as our square one. See what I did there? A little plug there. It, it, It serves as that place for us to get back and get it right again. A place we need to go so that we can start over in the grace of God constantly. Where we can say, God, I'm back. I am back to square things up with you. Because I can't do it myself. So go back to that cycle of history that we saw before and you're going to see something much different. A cross right in the middle of it. So that when we're in that point of freedom, if we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we should be able to see the only reason I'm experiencing this is because of the death of Jesus Christ for me. When when we experience that abundance, the good life, and, and, and we see that, man, life really is meant to be full. It's because of Jesus Christ. We have to go back to the cross. It's not us, it's Him. When when we start to find ourselves growing a little, I don't know, complacent in our walk with God, and the apathy sets in, we go back to the cross. We run to that cross and say, God, I don't know what's happening here, but I don't want to be here. And God says, let's try this. And it's not something new, it's, it's the same thing. Walk in grace. Because that's what I poured out for you at the cross. And then if we, if we don't learn our lesson there, we move in and we find ourselves in bondage. We find ourselves in a landscape and say, what happened? How did we get here? Run, run, run to the cross. Because that's the only place where we find rescue. We cannot rescue ourselves. Nehemiah could not rescue Israel, let alone himself. The message of Nehemiah is a story of renewal and restoration. But get this, there will never be lasting renewal, lasting restoration without a Savior. 
It's beyond my reach. I need a Savior. Let me close with Hebrews. Uh, There's this great passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that basically says Jesus Christ came and He was the sacrifice. We don't have to keep coming back to the altar with a sacrifice because once and for all, Jesus is that sacrifice. If you're here today and you feel like, man, I'm caught in that revolving door and I'm sick of it. I just want to get out. Jesus Christ is and always has been that sacrifice. He is the only one that rescues me and rescues you. Now I want you to see the very last verse of Hebrews 10, verse 14 there. A little small. Go back to your Bible and highlight this one. And don't just highlight this one. Claim this one. Brothers and sisters, believe hard on this one. Believe this verse like you've never believed it before. I think God gives you permission to do that. God is not wishy-washy about this statement. He's not saying, oh, some of the time, maybe. No, He's saying all the time, for those who have a relationship with me through Jesus Christ, no matter how much we foul it up, by that single offering, that cross, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The cross stops the cycle. The cross and Jesus alone. And that's where you and I have to come to terms. Is it Jesus alone? Or is it something else? Or is it something plus Jesus? And somehow I'm going to get where I need to be, be the sort of person I think God wants me to be. Am I, are you caught in bondage to something? Maybe it's even an addiction. And it's, it's, it's not here to give you life to the fullest. It's here to, to steal and to kill and destroy. And you feel like Loki, you know, like you've been picked up by the Hulk and smashed against the ground several times. Purity God. <laughs> and really, that's what we all need to hear at some point because we think we're our own God. And then, we have to say, man, we are puny gods. And you're just tired of getting smashed around. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I say that unabashedly, unashamedly, because there's not very many things I know in this great big universe. But I know this. The only hope I have, the only rescuer I have, the only possibility of restoration and renewal that will go all the way into eternity is not me. Just Jesus. Let's pray. Well, I should have watched the clock. Um, Lord, I can't even preach a sermon in the amount of time that's allotted to it. And I know these are, I'm taking other people's time, even while I'm praying here. Um, but Lord, I, I think time matters in eternity, for eternity. And I, and I pray, Lord, that this time was your time. And I, and I pray that, 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 that for, for us here today, that somehow you stepped into the cycle of our history and reminded us of who we are and who we aren't. And that God, uh, that most of all we would leave this place, maybe not knowing it for sure or, or, or how it all works, but, but at least leaving this place with at least one certainty. And that is, is that the, the cross is the cinder block that stops that door from spinning. That door of ruin. 
And Lord, I pray with all my heart and all my spirit, I would pray with all my bones that they would break right now. That if there's someone here that needs a rescue from Jesus, that right here, right now, in this point of their history, they would step into eternity and say, yes, Jesus, take me, I'm yours. Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.